I like that little soundtrack. That's kind of fun. All right. Well, good morning once again. We're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible with you or around you, find it, take it out, or turn it on, whichever the case may be. Uh, we're going to uh, cover multiple points of study this morning, so be ready to do some traveling uh, in, in your Bible, whether it be electronic or otherwise. Um, we began uh, last week, I, I said it would be a one-time uh, deal, but there was, a, there was some good conversation that overflowed after uh, last Sunday's study, and uh, so this is a little bit of a follow-up on the topic that we began uh, last week. So we talked about justice last week, and um, I attempted to make the case that there is, in fact, a, a vast difference between our inherited notion of justice on the one hand versus what, what I chose to call divine justice um, last week. A, a great difference between those two. Uh, and I think basically the way that I, I characterize the difference is that our inherited notion of justice uh, basically follows the line of payback, equaling the scales, the administration of punishment um, as a consequence for a wrong done, right? A wrong has been committed. We need justice. How do we do that? Well, somebody's got to experience some pain. Somebody's got to bleed. Uh, that kind of idea. Um, and in contrast to that, uh, what we see in the full revelation of God uh, certainly uh, its pinnacle being in Christ himself, is a very different vision. It's, it's what I call divine justice, and it would be characterized not by retaliation and payback, but instead characterized uh, by restoration and healing um, along those lines. And, and this is, it's, it's new for us. It's a new way of thinking. I, I, used, I used the image of baptism that, that we really need a baptism of our notion of justice uh, in order to be able to uh, orient ourselves. Um, uh, and so we started that last week. And, and I think, in, based on the, the conversations that I've had through the course of, of last week, I, I used the idea of a baptism. Uh, I talked a little bit about a paradigm shift. And so as, the, as the, this past week has gone on, and I've had some conversations with others, I've started to think about um, a tectonic shift, you know, like... Uh, like tectonic plates deep in the earth's, uh, beneath the earth's surface, those plates shift relative to one another, and that tectonic, that shift of those tectonic plates uh, has a ripple effect on the surface of the earth, and we call that an earthquake, right? Um, so I was kind of thinking about, I'm thinking about it along those lines, right? Like, so when you, when you begin to orient yourself around, oh, oh, this is, this is in fact uh, what divine justice is, uh, that begins to ripple through not just various theological categories, um, although it does that, but uh, I think more importantly and more, more profoundly than that, um, that recognition begins to ripple its way through, hopefully, and this is ultimately the point, it begins to ripple its way through our soul, through the way that we think about, not only the way we think about, um, about what God is like, but it begins to ripple, therefore, through uh, what's happening within us in terms of our spiritual formation, right? Um, the essence of worship is always imitation. 
And so, and so as, as my understanding of the nature of God changes from retributive to restorative, then, then, then the, the effect of my worship of this God becomes a, uh, a restorative trickle-down within and through my soul and ultimately out through my life and the way that I operate in the world. Does that make, does that make sense? Um, uh, I think it does. You know, we sing these worship songs. You know, I remember, you know, well, I mean, you know, I want to be more like you. You used to sing that song back in the 90s. Anybody remember that song? I want to be more like you, right? Well, here's a scary thought. If when you sing that song to the divine and your imagination of the divine is that the divine is angry, retributive, vengeful, right? Then guess what? The more you sing that song, the worse off the rest of us are, <laughs> right? So if that's your vision of the divine, don't sing that song. <laughs> we don't want you to be like that. We want you to be less like that and more like Jesus, right? Okay, so, so that's kind of, I think, you know, when I think tectonic shift, that's, that's kind of what I mean, kind of that ripple um, effect of a change like this. Okay, so we started making that case um, last week, and, and I just want to, again, by way of kind of scooping up where we left off, um, this notion of restorative justice, it is elusive to us in terms of, I, I, I think it, it's a tragic uh, understatement to say, uh, we've been rather slow to grasp this idea. Um, and so in that sense, I'm saying that this notion of justice is elusive. Uh, and yet, this is not because it's difficult for us to understand, and it's not because this portrayal of justice has been unavailable to us. This notion of justice actually is understandable to us and is available to us. Um, I said last week that uh, just even in our human relationships, if you think about a healthy parent, uh, a healthy parent who seeks justice among his or her household, right? So when there's quarreling or fighting among the children, a healthy parent doesn't say, okay, Johnny, I see that you struck Susie, and so what I'm going to do now is strike you with equal, you know, I mean, hope, you know, I, I said healthy parents don't behave that way, and if it's your temptation to behave that way, then, you know, try Xanax or something uh, until you heal. Uh, so, but, so that this idea is, is, is accessible to us as healthy parents. What we want to do is we want to seek restoration. We want to seek healing uh, in the context of our household. So this is a ready image uh, for us. But, but, but in addition to that, um, I want to just quickly recount for you um, one instance from the teaching, the explicit teaching of Christ, which brings out uh, this transformed uh, vision of justice. Listen to this, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, to which we respond, yes. We've heard that. We've, uh, we've seen it written. That was given by Moses to, to, as a part of the foundation of the new society of Israel after they escaped slavery from Pharaoh. I mean, you can, you can build a society on that, right? An eye for an eye, absolutely. And this is our, as I'm describing it, our inherited notion of justice. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but... I say to you, so here's something new, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well, 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Then stop there. Goes on, of course. Here's a few, a little bit later. Uh, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which sounds perfectly fair, right? Perfectly, according to the inherited notion of justice, perfectly just. Love your neighbor, uh, hate your enemy, which is actually the way we practice, right? Why are you so angry at me? Because you treat me so badly, right? Why, why, do you, why don't you listen to me? Because, because you don't listen to me, right? That's, that's kind of how that retributive notion of justice works. So you've heard it said, love your neighbor uh, and hate your enemy. But, here's something new, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, again, everybody, this is, this is a new vision. This is a baptized notion of justice. This is a paradigm shift uh, that Jesus is bringing about in the kingdom of God. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, I love this. Listen to what Jesus is doing. He is rooting this ethic for uh, the new community of the Spirit. Let's say it that way. For the Jesus people. Rooting this ethic in the identity, character, nature of God. So in other words, as he says, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, he's not saying, here's the moral bar for you to clear, and if you can clear it, then you can be called. No, he, no, 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 no. He's saying, he's saying uh, as the sons and daughters of God, uh, we are being called to imitate God. Chip off the old block. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Those kinds of expressions. That's what Jesus is saying. So that you may be a chip off the old block. So uh, love your enemies so that, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's the idea of what he's saying. For he makes, and here he's continuing on with his theme of describing uh, the character of God. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And if you're an agricultural society, right, the sun rises like, like fresh air. Um, and sends rain on both the righteous and on the unrighteous. In the same way, in an agricultural society, sun and rain are the essential gifts required uh, for your agricultural project. So, so this is the nature of God, Jesus says. So, so here it is. This is this, this shifted paradigm shift, this baptized notion of justice. We, we find it elusive for us, like speaking collectively for humans, uh, but it's not because it's unaccessible or unclear. I think it's because, I don't know, I mean, and I don't even know if it's helpful to try to answer that question, but um, I, I think that this notion of justice is so sublime and so beautiful and so transformed and transformational while at the same time we are continually saturated with what is here and now in the world that we live in. Um, and so we tend to basically conform to our environment, whereas what Jesus is giving us here is an ethic that is intentionally transformational. Um, this is all in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, of course. Um, and we looked the last several weeks um, at this prayer that comes from within the Sermon on the Mount and this prayer that pivots on the line uh, as in heaven, so on earth. And here's an example of heaven's vision of justice being brought about and poured out in the earth through the Jesus people, right? So, so this new 
transformed and transformational vision of justice. So today, I want to take another run um, at this from, from kind of a different angle. And this is all in the effort of, of I don't know, trying to orient or reorient ourselves um, around, this, around this idea. Okay, so let's go at it like this. Um, do you suppose there might be a difference between what God is, who God is, truly, in his essence and his nature, on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, what I think God is, who I think God is. is. You think there might be a difference between the reality, objectively speaking, of God, his nature, his character, on the one hand, versus my notion of God. You think there might be a difference between those two. Don't answer that question just yet. Um, uh, I don't know about the other two major monotheistic religions, uh, that being Judaism and Islam. Uh, I don't know enough about those uh, religions to say um, whether or not they share a unified image of God within themselves. But I do know that I can speak for Christianity. I do know that within Christianity, there are many, many vastly different um, ideas about what God is like. That is, among various subgroups of, of Christians, right? Like we've said before, some, some groups of Christian, Christians see God as retributive, angry, even violent. Some, some groups of Christians see God that way and have it codified as such in their doctrinal um, you know, confessions. Uh, some groups of Christians see God as good and only good, merciful, forgiving. See God as love in his very essence. There are groups of Christians who see God that way and who, and who say so explicitly. Then there are some who see God as a patchwork of attributes, some, some attributes which um, actually stand in opposition to one another. Uh, God is loving and God is wrathful. God is forgiving and God demands a payment for a wrong done. Um, God is merciful and God is threatening. So you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout. You know, I'm telling you what. Um, so, so some groups see God as kind of this patchwork of these various attributes, many of which... Uh, stand in opposition to one another, and it's not quite clear to me, I'll just confess, how that all comes together to create uh, some kind of whole, safe notion of the divine. Um, and, so, but, and so this is just a general sketch of various, you know, like formal groups within Christianity. When you take a step beyond that and get to the question of what about among individual Christians, are there differences between uh, the notion of God held by a single individual, um, uh, are there differences among individuals in, ter in terms of our notion of God? And the answer is, <laughs> absolutely. The way that we perceive God is informed not only by, you know, Sunday school and sermons and overt religious teaching, but the way we perceive God is, is formed by 
um, how we're treated by our uh, most intimate caregivers early in life, how we process the experiences of our lives, both um, both painful experiences and, and joyful experiences. And I mean, and all that and more comes together to form our image of God. The point is, the point is that among we humans who believe in one God, there are, let's just face it, there are myriad conceptions of what God is like held in these souls of ours, right? So now the question, take any one specific conception of God held within any one human soul, and now ask the question, is there a gap between that individual conception of God on the one hand and the reality of what God is like on the other? Is there a gap? And the answer is, absolutely there's a gap. <laughs> absolutely there's a gap. There is, there is an infinite uh, distance between the way any one of us would conceive of God uh, on the one hand and on the other, the reality of what God is actually like. Now, I said all that to say, this is the stunning, revolutionary, never gets old, never becomes mundane confession of Christianity. Because what we say and have said since our very beginning. What we say is that this expanse that I've just delineated, this expanse between how you or I might conceive of God on the one hand and the reality of what God is like, this vast expanse has been crossed by God himself and he has fully revealed himself to humanity in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the stunning, revolutionary, never gets old, never becomes old hat, never becomes mundane confession of Christianity. That Jesus Christ is the full self-revelation of God. And so you have in our New Testament, this is not the only one, but you have numerous statements like this kind of thing in the New Testament. This is from John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. He says this, no one has ever seen God. Now, John knows John knows the scriptures, and he knows that his Bible contains stories of, you know, uh, Moses seeing God face to face, Abraham. I mean, he knows all that. And yet John says, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart in the bosom of the father, who has made him, that's God, known. Jesus Christ, it is only is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known? And so this vast expanse, this infinite expanse between what you or I might perceive or conceive of what God is like on the one hand and the reality of God's character, this vast expanse has been crossed by God himself in his Son, Jesus Christ. He has made God fully known to us. Now, uh, we're, we're approaching this notion of justice from another angle. And so I want to ask you to stay with me for a few minutes as we continue to, to work our way toward that. Um, 
We're gonna, I'm going to ask you now to, to go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 contains the story that we know of as the fall. We commonly call it, you know, the fall, the fall of creation, the fall of humanity, um, uh, however, however it may be spoken. Um, and you know the story. Adam and Eve have been created. They're in the Garden of Eden. Everything is idyllic. They are in uh, they have been created in the image of God, and they are living, experiencing uninterrupted intimacy with God, right? They're created in the image of God. They've been given this mission and mandate to bear God's image in the world, and they are functioning within the uninterrupted flow of the human and the divine relationship, right? That's, that's kind of where Genesis 2 leaves us off. Then... Genesis 3, and I'll just read it. Uh, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. Uh, he said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat uh, from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, uh, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and, uh, and that the tree was to be desired to make her wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Okay, so there's the story of what we call the fall. I want to ask you a question, and again, don't, don't answer uh, out loud or too quickly, but here's the question. When did the fall occur? We recognize this as the report of the fall. So precisely when did the fall occur? Did the fall occur, right, like, like when Eve actually took a bite of the fruit? Did the fall occur when, right, like chapter, Genesis chapter 3, you know, it, it plays out and uh, they hide from God when he comes walking in the garden. They hide and, uh, Adam, where are you, says, says God. And uh, it's just weird, awkward moment. You know, he says, I realized I was naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? You know, like, like the weirdest statement ever. Um, so, so and, and, then, and then there's a pronouncement of sort of, here's the consequences of what you've done, right? Like you're going to work and you're going to sweat of your brow and briars and thistles and so on and grow on the earth. Is that when the fall occurred? Was it when they ate? Was it when, like when did the fall occur precisely? Um, and I want to propose uh, a provocative observation that's held by a number of observers, theological thinkers, um, that in reality, the precise moment when the fall occurred was the moment when the humans chose to believe something untrue about God. That's when the fall occurred. The fall occurred when, having been tempted by the serpent, the humans chose to believe something untrue 
something false about what God is like. In other words, the serpent comes and he offers his temptation, but that in and of itself is not the fall. When the, the fall occurred, when the human said, oh, you know what? He, God might be holding out on us. He might not be operating in, in good faith as we presume. Maybe, maybe we do need to grasp for something in addition in order to secure our footing and our place in the world. Maybe, maybe we're not 100% safe just participating in this uninterrupted flow with the divine. The human intimacy was ruptured when the humans imagined something false about God. And as a result of believing this lie, suddenly what begins, what comes into human experience for the very first time is religious anxiety. Religious anxiety, uncertainty. We may not be safe. We may not be secure. See, we also call this the account of original sin. And so from this perspective, we could say that original sin was not so much the violation of a specific command given by God, but rather original sin, we could say, was the outworking of religious anxiety that was created by a false notion of God. And so this conversation about God image becomes uh, all the more significant, the question of what God is like. And so, so the beginning of all of this upheaval that we find in Genesis 3, the beginning of it is the acceptance of a lie. The, the, the humans believe a lie about actually what God is like. And the result of that is religious anxiety. And the result of that religious anxiety becomes this grasping. Grasping for something else, grasping for something additional, grasping for something more, and then things just unravel from there, right? The, the story plays out and blame uh, enters into human experience. Adam uh, blames Eve, Eve blames the snake, right? The snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> um, blame emerges in human experience. Shame emerges for the first time in human experience. And then if you stay with the story, just keep turning pages, uh, you see the introduction of sacrificial religious practice, right? You see Cain and Abel bringing uh, sacrifice to God, spontaneous human religious sacrificial activity, right? And again, right there early in those pages of Genesis, we see what's always the case, and that is that sacrificial religion always has victims. Cain kills Abel, and with that comes the beginning of the killing among humans that has continued now basically un uninterrupted for thousands of years. All right, so the divine human rupture occurred when the humans believed a lie about God. When the humans believe that, who knows how they interpret it, God may be holding out on us, something, uh, whatever it might be, but nevertheless, they believed a lie about God, and the divine human rupture occurred. And the outworking of that self-deception was religious anxiety, the, the compulsion to reach for something, 
the impulse to grasp for something in order to secure their place in the world, in order to secure their standing in life as persons, etc. Okay, Genesis 3. Got it? Everybody got it. Let's do it. Okay. Now, fast forward thousands of years uh, to the Apostle Paul. All right? Uh, so, days of the early church. Uh, This is the very earliest days of the Jesus movement, people encountering the good news about what God has done in Christ, forming these little communities um, all over the countryside. And this is the Apostle Paul working with one of those particular Jesus communities uh, in the region of Philippi. He writes them a letter. We call it Philippians. Uh, And like all of Paul's letters, uh, it is a situational letter. Paul is working with this church, and I'll just say in general, uh, he's working to to, uh, well, maintain or recover unity among this diverse group of Jesus followers, right? Like, like something to always remember when you're thinking about the missionary work of the Apostle Paul is that he was building communities of people who ordinarily, culturally speaking, despised one another. In their case, Jews and Gentiles. Paul was bringing those people together in a single shared community, right? And so that's always a big, broad context for all of Paul's letters uh, and, and even in the letter of Philippians, although uh, the real headline, when you look at a study of Philippians, it's always going to be uh, the joy that comes through in Paul's writing of Philippians. Um, that theme comes back again and again and again. And yet, at the same time, there is this theme of where he's addressing competition within the community, uh, uh, competition, jealousy, divisiveness, and so on. Can you imagine a church that has among it people who would compete with one another and be divisive and potentially jealous of one another. I mean, we can't imagine that. But, I mean, back in those old days, they had that apparently. So uh, so Paul is dealing. <laughs> this is funnier than you guys are letting on. I appreciate it. Anyway, uh, so so this is what's going on in Philippians. It's no exception in, in that sense. Okay. So here we have in Philippians chapter 2, listen to this. So he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen to what he says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, so here's like a, here's like a, like a riff from Paul, and he's giving these very specific instructions, right? This is, this is ethical coaching, right? He's, he's encouraging, admonishing, instructing, whatever you want to say. He's talking about telling these folks how to behave toward one another, right? Okay, so that's what's going on. Uh, don't do any other, don't be ambitious or conceited, uh, be humble, count others, you know, higher than yourself. He's giving them all this stuff. And then it's almost like you can feel the gears working in Paul's mind. And he's going like, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to say to substantiate that ethical riff that I just gave? What am I going to, what am I going to give for folks to kind of, you know, so to speak, sink their teeth into uh, in order to grab onto really what I'm trying to say? And look what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So have the mind of Christ. In other words, he's given this ethical riff of 
put others first, humility, put others' interests uh, ahead of your own or whatever. And what can I say to, get, to give people a, something to grab onto? Uh, to, to, okay, oh, I know what it is. I'm, I'm just asking you to have the attitude of Jesus. I'm asking you to practice the identity of Christ. And then Paul launches into what scholars tell us in all likelihood was an existing poem or perhaps even a hymn among the earliest followers of Jesus. So, so what scholars tell us is that it's, all, it's very likely when we read Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and following, that it's very likely that we are reading potentially uh, a hymn of the early church, or at least a poem, but perhaps even something that the earliest Christians sang. And so this is, in the original language, this is very poetic. It's got rhythm and meter and so on. Uh, so, but here's what he launches into. He says, look, among yourselves, take up the mind, the attitude, the mindset, the perspective of Christ, and then we pick up with verse 6. Listen to this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is rich, rich, and we don't have time to pay attention to all of the facets of this, what's often called the Christ hymn of Philippians 2. But for our purposes today, I want to just point out a couple of things. Notice, if you would, the I'm going to refer to this as a parallel, but really they're parallels in reverse uh, against the Genesis 3 story. Notice that Paul describes Jesus, and this is the uh, English Standard Version I have, but uh, here in this English translation, he describes Jesus as being in the form of God. And other translations, if you look at this in various English translations, and I would encourage you to do that, it's difficult to translate this poetry. Um, but other translations are going to say flat out that what Paul is really saying is that Jesus, uh, Jesus was in equal status with God. It's a claim to the divinity of Christ, the, the eternal divinity of Christ in union with the Father. It's seen as proto-Trinitarian uh, in that sense, okay? So, so, so Paul is describing Jesus in this intimate, equal status with the Father. Now, think about the humans in the garden in Genesis 3. In the garden, the humans, though not divine themselves, they were certainly uh, created in the image of God, and they were certainly existing within this uninterrupted flow with the divine. That's where Genesis 2 leaves off. And then notice what Paul says. Though Christ was of equal status with God, he did not count equality with God. Look at that word. Something to be grasped. Now again, think back to Genesis 3. In the garden, the humans, having believed the lie, in contrast, they did reach out and grasp for something, to hold on to something. We need to reach out and grasp for something to, uh, 
to, uh, uh, to uh, make certain our security, to make certain our full identity, to, to make sure of our uh, full experience of life and whatever else might be available to us. And so the humans, having believed a lie about God, in contrast to Christ, who did not grasp, the humans did reach out and grasp for something that would secure their full standing, secure their place in the world somehow, if you want to say it that way, right? So, so it's a parallel, but it's a parallel in contrast that Paul is um, uh, communicating here. Now, this word, uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. The word there, the Greek word there is kenosis. He emptied himself. It means, it means that he poured himself out. It, it, uh, kenosis refers to the uh, self-emptying, um, self-giving, self-offering, other-oriented love. I used to think, I used to read that, and I would think uh, he emptied himself. And so I used to think, well, you know, that, that probably means that what Paul is saying is that like in eternity, Christ was, was uh, completely divine and completely unified with the Father. But in the incarnation, somehow he emptied himself of his divinity or he emptied himself of some kind of, uh, you know, maybe he emptied himself of the super duper divinity and became something subordinate or whatever. I mean, I used to read it like that, even though that would be formal heresy, but that's honestly the way I read it. But, but, but in reality, what Paul is describing is not that Jesus poured out his divinity. What he's talking about, he is describing what divinity is. He's describing what the nature of God is. And he's saying, here's the nature of God. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. It is self-sacrificial, self-offering, other-oriented love. Not that he suspended his divinity. Not that he suspended his divine nature. Rather, what Paul is saying is that precisely because Christ is divine. He poured himself out in other-oriented, self-giving, poured-out love. And why? Because this is what God is like. God is self-giving, other-oriented, self-offering love. Now again, notice Paul's logic here. He's working to create unity among this very diverse community of people, right? So there's the, at least the potential, it appears from reading the document, the potential for competition, divisiveness, jealousy, whatever, factionalism going on among uh, the church. And so what Paul says, here's, here's what I'm going to do. Here's, I'm going to work to fix all that by asking people to imitate Christ who is the very expression of God. So, notice, in a way, not in a way, overtly, I think, this is, this is like incarnational healing ethics, right? So he's saying, look, Jesus is the expression of God. This is what God is like, canonic, self-emptying love. And so Paul is asking them, and by extension, asking us to imitate that kind of ethic, which is patently 
restorative justice. See, because our inherited notion of justice, everybody, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's you've taken something from me, now you've got to give it back. You've wounded me, now you've got to be wounded. It's the opposite of self-emptying. What Paul is saying is that everybody, Jesus has given you a picture of what it means to, what the, the full self-revelation of God looks like and simultaneously what the full revelation of what it looks like to be a true human being. And it is this poured out, canonic, we could even say cruciform love. Notice, by the way, the, um, where the cross comes into this Christ hymn. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And once again, I remind you, everybody, because I know, just like me, the, the, the kind of the culture that we've come from, but I've been saying this uh, as, as often as I, as I can, um, notice the context here. Paul is inviting Christians to imitate Christ. And the cross comes up as a feature of that um, proposition of imitation. See what I mean? So, so if you've been trained to think of the cross in substitutionary terms and something that Jesus did instead of us, then you can't read what Paul is saying. Paul's saying that Christ, Christ uh, on the cross is, and we would say, is the, uh, the pinnacle of the picture of God's cruciform, canonic, poured out love. And Paul's saying, come, come imitate that kind of love. A love that would rather die than retaliate against his enemies. This is the full self-revelation of God. It is participatory. It's the same logic you find in the Gospels, right? Take up your cross and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake will follow me. I mean, it's, it's all throughout. But sometimes we just have to point out um, some of those places where we have a hard time uh, hearing Paul because of our uh, programming. So, 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 so justice then becomes this, once again, this profound question that's right in the middle of all these conversations. And we could say it this way. Our inherited notion of justice, that being retributive uh, justice, would be our attempt to secure our place in the world, right, through payback, through punishment, through getting even, whatever. And in contrast, divine justice, we could say in the context of this study, we could say that divine justice is this self-emptying love for the benefit of the other. And so, everybody, we are being oriented into an entirely new universe. Um, and so, I pray that as our conversations continue um, about this and, and how this works out in our lives, in our households, in our marriage, um, in our, uh, you know, this, this, again, this current cultural moment that we're in with this weird uh, this weird confluence of conversation about the pandemic and the quarantine rules and so on. Uh, and kind of, you know, there are times when 
that conversation turns into somebody demanding my rights, you know, that kind of, that kind of thinking and rhetoric that, that comes out. And then, of course, um, the conversation that we're currently having in our cultural moment about social justice and systemic justice and systemic racism and, and so on. Um, when I talk about a tectonic shift, this is what I'm talking about. This notion of divine justice uh, exists at a deep, deep level in the way that we think, in the way that we talk, um, in the way that we carry ourselves um, in, in our world, in the workplace, in our homes, uh, on and on. It, it, the implications of this uh, go on and on and on. And so uh, my prayer is ultimately that the Spirit himself will be our teacher for how this plays out in terms of the way that we move uh, in the world. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, uh, I do. I pray that right now by your spirit you would pick up where my words leave off uh, and that you would take us on a tour of how and where we can creatively and redemptively embody the self-giving, self-emptying nature of your character. Um, and I pray that you would do that, that you'd, you'd lead us, inspire us um, with a new imagination. Um, Jesus, we understand that you are the full self-revelation of God. You are the apocalypse of the divine. Um, and even as we say that, uh, still, I say for me and I think for most of us, we, we struggle to really and truly, um, to really and truly get it. And so I'm just asking you by your spirit, would you just help us to get it? Just as Paul prayed, <coughs> just as Paul prayed for another group of Jesus followers that he worked with. Would you help us, Father, by your spirit on the inside of us to help us to come to know the love of Christ, the height, the width, the depth, the breadth. Help us to come to know it, though we could never fully perceive it. 